Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mark Groves podcast. This week I'm sharing with you a conversation that I had with Mr. Rainier Wild. And this guy is such a linguist. I mean, the way he speaks, it's so poetic and the way he storytells. Uh, I was captivated throughout the conversation and really honored to be immersed in so much wisdom of his own pain and his own learning and tells a story, many stories that, but his journey and the stories within that journey of what it means to be human in relationship and to make mistakes and then to learn from those and to discover deeper love and deeper meaning. And I think we are all on that journey somewhere in between. And I think, you know, we're always in a deeper version of waking up, a deeper version of awareness. It's like, even though what are our old behaviors and, and those become healed and resolved, we are really just continuing to expand to another level every time. So there's always room for upgrades and room for growth. And I know this conversation this week with Rainer Wild will certainly help facilitate that for you as it did for me. So before we get jumping in here, wherever you listen to this podcast, please, one way you could support it is to subscribe to it and give it a five-star review and a written review. And with all that said, here we go. Here's Mr. Rainier Wild. Welcome, everybody. I am pumped up to have Mr. Rainier Wild on the show. Welcome, my friend. Hey, it's good to be here. So good to have you here. Finally. <laughs> I know. Finally, we've yeah. been trying to track this down. And I'm, you know, it, so for those of you who don't maybe know Rainier, Rainier is a writer, a teacher, a guide. If you don't follow him on Instagram, you're going to want to. Um, you know, I would say that a large amount of your content, well, I would say most of your content's relational. Yeah. And also offers a lot of insight into the male experience. Um, but yeah, I'm, I know you have a new book that just came out, As You Are, Meditations on Self and Other. So yeah, I'd love to just dive in if you're ready. Absolutely. God, I it, it, it's always interesting hearing, you know, the reflection of what I'm about, what is the <laughs> right. content that I'm producing about? Somebody recently asked me, he said, um, you know, what's the book about? And I, I froze. It was like an existential crisis for me. <laughs> and I always get this way, you know, like, I, I don't know. It's, it's something reflective of me. Maybe that's why the male experience runs prominent when, when you read my work. But 
I think there's something essentially that I'm trying to get at, which is the human experience, the experience of being alive, which is complicated. It's not black and white. It's not either or. It's not good or bad. But the binaries that we're put into rather relentlessly societally today. And if I can just tell a story, maybe it's from my own life or or someone else's, maybe one that I've heard, if I can just shed some light on a situation that is complicated, where you can identify with both the hero and the villain, where there's no hero or villain, where we simply see ourselves as we are. And that's what I'm always hoping to do in what I'm sharing, whether it's on Instagram or the book. And You know, the book is really just a collection of these meditations that I've been writing over the past several years, trying to, again, shine that light on how we are, when we are, in relationship. I think that's something that we need to talk about a lot more. There's been so many books written on it, but I I feel sometimes they miss the, the profound complicatedness of being alive. What do you, what fueled that? Because, you know, I find the birth of that sort of mission or passion comes from our own experience. It comes from the desire for that thing that we then become the teacher that we needed. We start to write the stories we wish we'd read. Yeah. I'm curious where that was birthed or, or when did you know that was what you were doing? Mm -hmm. I think in a lot of ways it was born out of my own dark night. I had spent hundreds of thousands of dollars. I like to say that between my partner, who's a a psychotherapist and myself, we have a small yet sizable percentage of the national student debt. Uh, (laughs) I, I had spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on higher education, trying to learn, you know, the intricacies of Western psychological theory. And, and also I had spent probably thousands of dollars also on flying across the world or seeing wisdom teachers being involved in communities of practice, listening to practicing with someone who would show me what it meant to be fully and deeply alive. Yet for all of my accomplishments, I still couldn't actually be in relationship. I still couldn't um, be a solid self. And I began to find over time that my strategies for being alive, uh, broken as they were, stopped working, (laughs) right? They, they, They weren't working very well. And so I was forced to examine what I thought I knew. And in that period of time, the externalities of the world began to grow very, very dim. And I entered what I often call the basement of shadows in that place, that, that, that murky, world, I didn't come up with answers. I came up with questions that dismantled my reality. And from that place of grief, something harder than granite emerged. And I would say that was a self. And that's why, you know, in, in as you are, I, I start with this sense of being a self because I learned that first you have to actually be a self to be in relationship to others. So yeah, all of this is really born out of my own experience. The idea of being a self in relationship to other, what do you find people are doing then before they have these uh, basement shadow moments or these rock bottoms or dark, dark nights of the soul or mental fractures, whatever people might name their own experience? What are they doing prior to the discovery that they never had a self? You know, because like often we're sort of like, I think about myself before my own personal experience of the of the dark night which i've had many but (laughs) the first was i sort of looked back and went was i making all those decisions i knew i was and i took responsibility for those decisions but in a lot of ways i felt very um like on autopilot like i i was just doing it and all of a sudden i got to this moment where i'm like oh wow like i I'm not living my my life for myself. I'm living my life for applause or to be part of the group or to this is what you just do. So, yeah, I'm curious. Yeah, you've said it so well. Autopilot, 
right? I, I remember this one moment when I was uh, working at United Parcel Service many years ago, and I had the swing shift where I would I would work, I think, till about eight in the morning. So very, very late at night, all through the night. And then I would I would get off early in the morning and I would drive 45 minutes to to where I lived. And I, I swear, I, I can remember leaving the warehouse and I can remember getting to my doorstep, but the 45 minutes in between, they did not exist. And uh, I don't know how I slept drived. I don't even know if that's the right conjugation, but somehow or another, I, I was asleep at the wheel, but I made it. And I think a lot of our lives are like that. We don't really notice what we're doing until the police officer pulls us over and says, you know, why the hell are you swerving in between the lines? That, that, that did happen to me. And when I looked at the police officer, and he said, are you drunk? And I said, no, I, I'm just asleep. Uh, and he said, you should probably use some coffee. Most of us don't actually know that's what we're doing in life, but that's exactly what we're doing. We're, we're born asleep. We go to school in our sleep. We get married in our sleep. And all of that's kind of a metaphorical way of saying exactly what you noted. We're going through the motions over and over and over, so much so that our habitual actions, that they no longer are choices we're making. And I think a lot of us relate to that. Friedrich Nietzsche said something that always has stuck in my mind. He said, you know, a few men have multiple selves, but most men have no self at all. Now, I think that's really interesting. What's he saying? Well, he's saying that the thing we think ourself to be is actually an amalgam of voices, right? Voices conditionings. It's our mommy and daddy's voice. It's our teacher's voice. It's our, it's the state. It's the religion. It's corporate interests. In so many ways, we're bombarded with voices, not our own, and we internalize them. They become our voice. I'm, I'm always amused by, you know, like I, I love Ford Broncos. You love Ford Broncos too, uh, right? That's something. Deep I, passion. Yeah. Deep passion. <laughs> Except for that middle part, and, but the, the middle years, but other right. than that, I'm a lover. Well, and, and when the new one came out, right before it came out, we were all bombarded with this marketing and it looked huge. It, it was this, you know, giant, wonderful Ford Bronco driving down a, a dirty alley. And God, didn't it look amazing? And <laughs> I remember saying to my partner something like, oh, I, I just want one of those Ford Broncos. And she looked at me and she said, yeah, you and everybody else. Right. I wasn't unique. It wasn't like I got this idea out of nowhere. I had been bombarded. <laughs> and by the way, w weren't you glad that you waited? You know, like when you saw like like this Cooper Mini of a creature uh, inching at you. <laughs> and so I think that's just the, that's just the point of it all for me, that that we are being bombarded rather constantly with things that we identify as our preferences, but have very little to do with any sense of essential reality. You know, I think what you're speaking to is so important because often we are all making these choices that are what we're taught to choose. And then you get the celebration of other, you get belonging, you get applause, you get promoted, you get all these things that eventually, though, I sort of see it like you go down this path that the soul is like kind of waving at you from the other side, like of a river being like, hey, like you could do that. And, and it's cool, but like, eventually I'm going to come for you. Like, eventually I'm going to be like, yo, wake the fuck up. Like I'm over here and you might lose some things in order to find that moment. You might lose some things to hear me. I say that with such gentleness because I know what it's like to lose the things to hear the self. Yeah. Um, and it takes sort of this complete mind blown reality gets completely shattered because you sort of it's like whenever you learn that there's deception or a system's corrupt which there are many mm. um or that like the food industry lied to you god forbid that fat's bad and sugar's good uh, cocaine to the brain or that pharma's not always on your side weird but it, it is the same construct in in some ways because it requires the empty self to believe in those things without any curiosity in some sense. Um, curious what you think about that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think once you're at that point, right, downriver, you've, you've been sailing for a while. And of course, for most of your life, you didn't think you had choices, right? 
it was like, oh no, you know, this is just what you do. This is just what you think. This is just what you believe. Um, of course, higher education. Of course, higher education. Of course, uh, the religion I was born into. Uh, uh, of course, this way of doing a relationship. And then you find yourself in a dilemma, a problem that none of your solutions can solve. And from that place, I think a lot of people, when that ice begins to crack, um, our natural response is to reach a helping hand and say, please, someone patch back up the ice, you know, and that's when we reach out to, you know, the pastor. That's when we reach out to the therapist. That's when we reach out to, you know, the kindly uh, elder statesman who somehow will help us put back together all the things that were broken. I think things get a lot more interesting if we don't put them back together. But instead, if we pry apart the ice, so to speak, and allow it to crack all the more. I mean, that's what happened in my life. I think if we if we look at every point of view as a view from a point, of course, these things were first self-evident to me. <laughs> uh, I think so, so much, much of, of my life, you know, was spent trying to build that skyscraper of success, of trying to become, you know, the the boy that daddy would be proud of and developing a way of being in the world that was deeply inhospitable to the parts I had to cut away in order to belong. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. What parts were in so, conflict? Um, you know, I, I would say tangentially, they're almost all. All the parts that have to do with bringing us deep delight are in conflict to the world we have created. I mean, right. Yeah, you're around a child. I've got four kids. And it's like, I remember the first time, you know, my my mother came over to our house when we had a young child and she was appalled that my six month old son had his hand in his diaper. You know, all, already it's like, stop touching yourself, please. Right. We're, we're so offended by the human condition. We want to cover it up. We want to 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 make sure that they behave in such a way. And I, I think I was right there with the rest of them. I, I I certainly think things like sexuality, things like anger, things like sadness, big emotions, those are unwelcome societally. Almost anything that makes you an individual, <laughs> that makes you stand out, is unwanted pretty early on. And I think that uh, society, if, if we can kind of think of it this way, society is the repression of the individual. Mm. And in order to be a member of society, you have to repress so many of the things that you find delightful, that you find motivating. And in my own life, those things were curiosity. Those things were sexuality. Those things were to be a passionate self in the world. I had to hide that. And I think when I talk to many men today and women, it's like you put on this cloak of dishonesty, but it doesn't seem dishonest. It just becomes your persona. Well, everyone else is <laughs> you just doing do it. it. So you're like, hey, let's hang out and have a beer over the fact that we're not telling the truth. Our, our couple fake selves are like, man, I love this beer. And let's be honest, not all beer actually tastes that good. We even pretend we like beer. You know, so it's <laughs> right. weird. You get a kid's reaction to beer. He hates it, right? He's like, what is this gross thing? And why is everybody pretending to like it? I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Wait till you're 18 and you have to drink it. Yeah. <laughs> we do that. And and so I, I think this, you know, I was kind of lockstep with that. And I got married. I got divorced. I uh, got a degree. I got another degree. And whenever I hit a bump in the road, it was the other person's problem, right? Whenever I was unsatisfied, it was, it was the thing, uh, the thing I had come in conflict with. It was never me. There was never something about myself that needed to be looked at. And, you know, finally I hit, um, I hit a place 
that I couldn't actually explain away anymore. I had an affair um, and uh, it was with a colleague at the time and turned into a toxic environment. Very, very painful to interact with. And I hadn't told my partner a lot of times in my experience with people who have been in these same situations, it's like you don't even know how to talk about the thing that's happening, even though that's all that's happening in the moment. You just don't even know how to say it, especially the people you're closest with. And I remember driving home and kind of rehearsing in my mind, how am I going to tell the woman I love that I betrayed her? How am I going to tell the woman I love that, that, my ability to provide for our family is in jeopardy because of my own ways of being in the world that are causing her pain. How, how will she even look at me if she no longer knows who she's looking at? And I called my mother and asked her to come stay with our kids. And, you know, my mother is a pretty shrewd operator. Uh, I just, there was a long pause when I asked her to meet me at the house. And she says, did you do something stupid? <laughs> and uh, she like, she knew she was on to me and we get there and I, um, I surprised my wife by asking if she'll go to the beach with me uh, and that weekend. And um, she gets in the car, doesn't really know what's happening. And about 15 minutes into the drive, I look at her and I, I tell her I had betrayed her. And, um, if anyone's ever been in that moment, you, you know, just the, the hour of devastation that that is her eyes just dissolve and she's looking at me and she doesn't recognize me in that pain, you know, and she begins to ask questions that bombard the next hour of our drive that extends to when we get to the beach. And, um, she wants to know, wisely how this could happen. Uh, she wants to know the details. She wants to know, was it sex or was it love? And how could you develop a character? How could you develop a whole way of being in this world that somehow substantiated the lies that you told? How could this happen? How did you get here? What habits had you developed? And uh, all I knew in that moment was I had to keep showing up. I, I just needed, like Hemingway said, if I if he could write just one true sentence, and that's what I kept thinking. I was like, if I can just say the next sentence and let it be true, right, in this moment. And so I just kept on responding to her questions as authentically as I could in that moment. We got to the end of the day and both exhausted. I crashed on the couch, she on the bed in the other room. And that night she called me in and to the bedroom she had been sobbing all through the night. She said, will you come in? And I said, yeah. And she said, will you lay down next to me? And I did. Then she asked me if I would hold her. I, I still don't understand the mystery of why she had me do that. But that, that moment we would both say was the first time we had ever held each other. All the masks had fallen off really for both of us. All of the personas, the, the things we had built to become acceptable. I was nothing in that moment. Reduced. Those are the moments where the ice has broken enough to where you can actually access what lies beneath. That's when I began to step into something like a solid self. And that's when I began to step into something like a real relationship. Do you feel like you broke the ice to get to that moment? Like your betrayal, your choices, uh, unconsciously, consciously, the narrative stories, the, the, you know, as you said, like, how did you develop a self uh, in this, this, and so easily tell this other story to me, like you're living in two worlds, you're very split, which is, you know, kind of ironic to what we're speaking about, because like, we're speaking about a split, like being split in the way I go about the world and then the way I actually want to be in that space is like to break the ice that gets you to the core or in the water or whatever the depths of the soul, whatever the uh, metaphor might continue to be. 
do you feel like you broke that ice to get to that moment of being finally witnessed? And, and, and how did that invite her uh, to, to do the same, to be truly held in that moment? Like what was the fracturing away of the mass she left? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've, I've continued to be curious about what her experience was on the other side of that. Um, it was a equally profound one as she shares it. I think in answer to your question about me, um, I think it was a, a, a profound gift. You know, the, the things that would ripple out of that moment, which really did look like loss. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it was like you, you were juggling all these plates and then suddenly, you know, it's like they all begin to fall to the ground. Relationships, career, family, reputation. All, I mean, all of it was just shattering. And... um I can't imagine that in that moment I would have thought, oh, thank God for this gift. Oh, my goodness, this is so wonderful, right? Uh, but, but today, you know, I look back on that and I go, oh, wow, what a gift. What a gift. The illusions dissolved. So I don't know if I created that. I, I had a good friend at one point said, you know, I think you're a smart guy. I think, I think that, like, you're smart enough not to do a lot of the stupid shit that you did. Um, I, I think you kind of want it out and, and maybe, maybe that's it. But, but then again, you look at the world today and you see the plates crashing to the ground for almost all of us worldwide in some ways. And it makes you think, are we all doing that? I mean, collectively, are we all kind of wishing that the plates would fall, that we would have one of those break through the ice kind of moments? Have we created a point of no return? I, I wonder the same, you know, for not just myself, but for us collectively. Mm. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. I saw all the, oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramont Plus. I mean, it makes it when you sort of say it that way. Yeah, I think we are all holding up all the plates, doing a fucking magic show till you realize that they're all the sort of um, smoke and mirrors types of tricks. You know, the sleight of the hand is the, oh, yeah, everything's fine. Yeah, I love this. Yeah, Christianity is my jam. You know, like where we, oh yeah, no sex till marriage. Like we're all preaching this similar sort of bullshit for sake of another term. Um, Like pretending that we believe in things that we don't believe in and pretending to be things we are not. And you know, in a lot of ways, like what you're speaking to, what I've experienced too, is there's this gift that's within the, the storm, the burning down of everything that is, but, but the truth that never burns down, you know, that's the beauty is like, you're left with the truth. You're left with you in her arms and her in yours. And they're actually two people truly holding one another. And maybe the ashes and the, the smoke are all around you, but you know, it's, there's certainly a loss, the loss of how we saw the world, the loss of who we thought we were, the sadness for all the bullshit we've built, all the pretending we've done and like yeah you're right though like in that moment you're not like what a gift you know like a little fucking bird flies off your shoulder and it's alice in wonderland i mean truthfully it is alice in wonderland in a lot of ways that that's an interesting thing to to comment about about you know i think the role of religion and that's one of the things as I get further away from from that, you start to see some of the threads, whether that's the roles of uh, of culture, dominant culture, the roles of education, the roles of of religion that they played, in, at least in my life, I think certainly larger. I was actually thinking about this recently. We don't really consider that dominant Western culture is so uh, based in Protestantism, um, uh, Protestant Christianity, but it so is. I mean, one cannot help but think that earliest education or lack thereof. <laughs> right. 
Well, that's just it, right? I mean, we're we're just so inundated with these concepts about the 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 badness of the body and the 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 strong work ethic, and I mean, all of these interesting concepts that have very little to do with the human spirit, and have almost everything to do with a philosophy that that views the human as inherently broken and inherently bad, and in need of an outside force to make him or her better. I think most of our institutions today are are wired with that same thought. I mean, recently I was considering the United States Constitution, which says, you know, that we are dedicated to this proposition of life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Like what an admission that is that we're not happy, that we have to chase it down. Right. That it's somewhere else. And all of us are miserable. We're going to create the circumstances. So you're always pursuing it and never actually it. But we'll write it into law that you have the right to chase it. Uh, But the fact that you're chasing it will make you want to become, you know, will just feed materialism. And the sadness that you have that you don't have it will be treated with drugs uh, in whatever type of drug. And not to dismiss when they're useful. Don't worry. Uh, Trigger warning on that one. But the. I mean, I think this sort of speaks to, as you said, the, the, the collective experience that we're having today, that, that if you can just learn to hold dissonance, if you can just learn to hold the truth, if you can, yeah, I think this is why we're so drawn to poetry and music and, and art, because really they're truth dressed up in color and sound. And we sort of get lost and, and get to feel witnessed in some way through literature, through a book like the one you're writing that you've written, sorry, and I'm sure you're writing another one, so that's probably true. Uh, You always are. It just seems to me like this beautiful denial in a lot of ways that we are all in this existential crunch to actually be seen, but pretending like we all don't want that. And then, you know, it's, oh yeah, what I was thinking was like, you spoke to the shadow being in the basement of the shadow. Is that the right? Mm, Yeah, that's right. And it seems to me like when you hold up this mask or you hold up what is false but pretend it's real, it just feeds the shadow. Like the shadow then is like, I'm going to get us back to where we need to go. Like they all these roles serve a purpose. Yeah. And to think like the path to being in the seat you're in today is because, you know, and, and your role uh, and your teaching all comes from this very deliciously painful moment where you finally were tasting the richness of the totality of the human experience, which man is hard as fuck when you've been denying it, you know? And I think, you know, the entire development of the ego persona is a denial of the things that you cannot say that you cannot feel that you cannot accept about yourself. And others can't either, which is why we cut them away in the first place. I, I love how you just said that, that the shadow kind of is is always running up to try and tap you on the shoulder to say there's more going on than meets the eye here. Right. I, I think the shadow gets demonized. I, I hear a lot of people talk about, you know, m- my demons, my shadow. And I'm like, no, no, the demon is is the, the guy who got out of the basement and is running to set the alarm bells telling you, hey, there's something down there you got to look at, you know. Yeah, like you, de- you know, if you deny sexuality, then you're going to get weird with your sexuality. If you deny, because it's going to come out in ways, you know, it's like you got this thing on your body that feels incredibly good to touch. And then you're told that you're bad or you're broken if you want to touch it. I'm sorry, if that's not a trap, I don't know one, you know, as opposed to how do we develop a healthy relationship with desire, with with right. um, wanting, with yearning, with uh, arousal, and it not be this thing that's put in a box with the shadow, but rather brought forward with this sort of um, plethora or nuance of what it means to be human. That desire is also in this mm. space, as opposed to like, hide that over there. It's only okay if you're married. And even then, like, don't get too weird. You know, doggy style is not respectful. You know, like we have all these fucking weird rules. And then everyone lives in these deviant chambers, you know, it's fucked up. Oh, and then pretend that we don't. I mean, I think that's that's the the funniest part to me. I mean, recently there was a news story and I won't name any names, but a a very large uh, conservative Christian uh, college, their president steps down. 
And and he steps down because, you know, several years back, he and his wife um, stepped into some sort of open relationship where they're swingers with the pool boy. And, you know, I, I applaud that. I'm, I'm like, great. This sounds wonderful for them. You know, it, it, like, do what you want, except for the fact that he's the president of a college that finds their students money every time they have premarital sex. I'm sorry. They find right? the them denial here. Premarital sex. I think it was like eight hundred dollars. Is that like you know, reverse like a, prostitution? An occurrence. Is that like reverse? <laughs> like you pay the fine for the sex? Do you are you paying for the sex or for the pun? You know, it's like a. I wonder if there was like a line item budget. You know, like we get so much amount of <laughs> right. money per year. Yeah. It's but I mean up. it's ludicrous. It right? is like just being who it, you are. Bang the pool boy if you want to. How get do a towel? What is it called a. Eiffel Tower, do whatever you want to do. Get involved in whatever you want to do. You know, it's that's the stuff. If you're doing it from a kind, gracious, ethical, authentic, um, communicative, consensual place. But you're right. Like, don't pretend to be this one fucking thing and then be another thing. But the irony of that is that, like, that's exactly what that person was taught to do. That's probably what their parent taught them to yeah. do. They're extremely Christian father or they're extremely whatever it is where you see built into culture and religion, these uh, exceptions that are secretly accepted, but everyone understands is true that the men especially are allowed to have these side things that are, you know, I remember learning about, I believe it was in Saudi Arabia, that a lot of the men have secret second marriages so they can have sex with their mistresses, but then their mistresses are only in relationship with them. And I'm like, well, isn't that, uh, isn't that special? You know, you're kind of like, how does everyone not, if you're waking up, taking the red pill, not to be confused with alt-right, calm down everybody. But if you're like taking that pill and you're going, that's fucking wrong. That makes no sense. Like, you know, as as they say, what is that saying? That um, rules for thee, but not for me. You know, I probably said that wrong. Even who cares? I said it the way I should have said. It. But I, but I think right here is is an interesting thing because at first, when you realize that you are not yourself, <laughs> and and you know, it's like okay, I, I have to discover something. I have to understand what lies beneath. You're you're still bound to those rules. Like you're clawing up out of the pit. You're trying to get out, but you're still in the pit. Like the road out of hell starts in hell, right? <laughs> you're right there. Uh, that's funny. <laughs> and and so uh. I think societally, one of the things that is rather beautifully happening is we are, in fact, taking off the mask. We really are. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And we're looking at each other and saying, okay, you know, God, you're not what I thought, and I'm not what you thought. But the thing that begins to occur over and over is we're astonished when bad behavior, we go, oh my God, wait, I, 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 thought, I thought that you, you did things a different way. We become very offended as people take off their masks, even though we're doing the same thing. And that's because we're still hooked on being right. Oh, I like to be right. Oh, I want you to think that I'm justified. Oh, I want you to think that I'm a good guy, right? And so we kind of have to be more right than our neighbor. We kind of have to be better than the person next to us. So we start to develop really peculiar rules. Again, going back to Nietzsche, he said, when people lose God, they start to get even more religious. And I think that's kind of a funny thing. Like societally, we've started to get even more bent on being right and self-righteous even more religious about uh, digging our feet into the heels of uh, the sand there. That's yeah. fascinating. I mean, to think about when we lose God, we get more religious. In a lot of ways, that's that um, spectacular investment we have in identity politics. And, you know, even that might, if I, if we're not arguing about my belief in God, we're arguing about my belief in COVID or my belief in, or not in COVID, right, or, or left or right or red or blue. 
Like we have this inability to dance in the nuance of what it means to be human, but the human experience. And it's, it's fascinating when we don't have what we might call a God that we're all sort of obsessed with protecting the identity and belief of, that we then become obsessed with protecting the identity of some other um, thing we've made deity a deity, which we've done with science too. Like you can't question science, even though literally science is a process of questioning. When people go, I believe in science, I'm like, it's not God, it's a process. Like science doesn't give a fuck about discussion. It, as I said before, like when you burn everything down, the truth remains. And it's, it is crazy, crazy to me, the obsession we've had with certainty, but it speaks, I think, to the greater thing, which is the fear of any death, including the death of the mass, the self, the false self. So how the, yeah. how do we, how do we do it? How do we do it? Rainier, please walk us through. Right there, you, you drilled down to where I think it begins, right? So, so if, if I could look just really analytically at that story, I just told you about what happened in my own life yeah. and just use myself as that example. In that moment, I had radically accepted something. <laughs> I had radically accepted that I was just about to lose everything. In fact, the end was nigh and I was standing in the middle of it. This was the end. There was no way I could worm my way out of it. Now, that's not exactly true because for the next several months, I tried my best to worm my way out of it. And I kept on spinning stories, right? Even as much as I tried to tell one honest sentence, I would punctuate that thing with as many lies as I unconsciously could populate it with, right? I was still just acting out of these automatic habits. As much as I wish I could tell you that somehow I had transformed overnight, I was still grappling with these same old ways of being and and still struggling. So what happened? Well, I remember the moment, and I say the moment because. I was sitting there in my driveway, and it was really when I was sitting in full acceptance of how all of my behaviors across my life had led me to this place. And I felt like I was getting just the universal kick in the face, and I was lower than low, and I'm sobbing, you know, like one of those really ugly cries that you, you have like <laughs> twice in your life yeah. only snot. Uh, like, I get it. That's where I was. Yeah. Just snot oozing down like this animal noise coming out <laughs> from me. And, and my partner is sitting there with me at the, at the time. And, and she puts her hand on my shoulder in that moment. And so I can now look over at her hand and I can see very visibly the rise and fall and know that my, my shoulders are just convulsing in sobs. And I, what tumbled out of my mouth was this rather pitiful statement. When does it end? When does it end? That right then was like a, a light bulb the size of an atomic bomb went off in my mind. I suddenly gasped out, it doesn't. It actually never ends. Life is hard. Life is hard. And this is hard. And all of my lies, which had been to create comfort and all of the, the things I had done to try and make myself feel better and all of the creating little rules for myself and the looking good and the being right, all of these little things to try and prevent the end, to try and to try and somehow anesthetize me from the one truth uh, that I am going to die alone, <laughs> like all of it had been to prevent it. And what I realized was I was never going to make it to the good stuff. This was the good stuff. And if I didn't fall in love with life as it was in this moment, there was never going to be a better moment. It hit me like a ton of bricks. The tears began to evaporate and I looked up and I saw a blue sky for the first time in months. Wow. That is how it happens. When you begin to one, say, I get it. We all die. We all die. And that two, life is hard. When I begin to accept those, and then that three, life can be beautiful as it is. Even though it's hard, even though it ends, I can enjoy 
life on its own terms. I'm adequate to it. Things begin to shift. From that moment forward, life transformed itself for me. I stopped resisting it. That's exactly what happened. And, you know, there's a lot of intervening moments since then I could probably continue to describe, but but they're really reiterations of that moment. And the knowledge that the degree to which I have suffered is the degree to which I have resisted life as it is for all of its perils and trials. I think of how rich those moments are once you realize they are the birthplace or, or of more of you. You know, it's uh, I remember hearing a line from Ram Das where he said, as you sort of move more into the space of compassion and surrender, you realize that suffering is grace, that like the act of it in of itself is like you realize where you're stuck, where you're up against an edge, where you're resisting and even resisting loss, resisting accepting loss, you know, it's, it's been true of my life for sure that when I experience pain or loss or grief that I'm in the exact same moment sort of like feeling how beautifully alchemical that process is that there's something in me being transformed you know that it's kind of like you said it never ends it's like you're always the caterpillar you're always the cocoon and you're always the butterfly I love that 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 right there is it because you, you kind of want to create an ending, which is why we create these weird and elaborate rules for ourselves and each other. Because because like we imagine that if we just do it right, if we just follow this one plus two plus three thing, that it will get us there, right? That we'll be fine. We're not going to be fine. It doesn't work out. You can't meditate enough. You can't, you can't, uh, you know, buy enough cars. You can't have enough sex. You can't, uh, you can't read enough scripture, right? That life actually just doesn't work out. In the end, you have to accept, radically accept the thing that you are most afraid of, which is that this whole thing ends in a way. And when you accept that, when you stand there and you can breathe that in, I think from that place of true radical acceptance, life begins to take on a very different tone. I think you're speaking to that moment that people experience when they're told they're literally going to die, you know, like survivorship for a cancer patient. Um, You know, I used to work in the area of oncology and hematology. And I remember sitting in a room when a man was told that his, uh, his cancer was fatal and his prognosis, and I remember just sort of sitting there in the sadness of that moment and the richness of that moment and studying the psychology after that, just wanting to understand the psychology of what does that moment do to us. And it it became interesting to me because at the time I was like 32, and I remember thinking, wow, we're all planning longer in our calendar based on what they tell us our average age of death is. But, you know, all of a sudden you're that person and you're told you have six months a year, whatever it is, that now your calendar planning got shorter and then each day became more valuable. But in a way, we're always that person in that room because we never know the moment. And there's this weird grief to that as you're speaking to. Like when you accept death, you know, you're free, like you're truly free. And then you can consume information. You can understand things in a different way. You're not as reactive because you're not trying to avoid death in a way you're sort of welcoming it. Yeah. And, you know, of course, when you look at the example I just used for my own life, Mm -hmm. I wasn't dealing with mortality issues. I was dealing with what we'll just say sexuality. Right. But, but even that, even that is an example of the same thing. Once you can look at yourself as you are, you know, nakedly, your desires, your impulses, your wishes, all of those things that you've stuffed down that, God, you would never let your partner know. You're like, oh, no, what? I delete. I clear out my browser history every night. She'll never find out or whatever that is, right? You, you, you avoid those truths, those frightening truths that if anybody knew, oh, my God, uh, I'll never forget the 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 phone ringing. I remember the moment. It was 12:02 p.m. and I had just sat down for lunch with my good friend uh Steve 
And we were at this restaurant that served lasagna and I am like a Garfield cat. I love lasagna so much. And, uh, and I was really excited to eat at this place and it was my wife. And I looked at the call, uh, I saw her number and I don't know why I didn't, you know, ignore it. Cause I was at this appointment, but I, I just, I was like, I got to take this. I took it. And she said, it's Judah, which is the name of my second oldest son. And my heart just sank. I said, what's wrong? What, what's, what's going on? And she said, um, the ambulance is here and she can't find the words. Um, and I, I stand right there. Um, and she said, he started seizing. Um, he's uncontrollably seizing and he was just two. And she said, I called the ambulance. They're here. We're going to the hospital. And I said, is he okay? Is he okay? And she says, I don't know. It looks like he can't breathe. I don't know. And she hangs up and, you know, it's like the words became just bullet holes in my heart. I I look at Steve, I say, I got to go. I get in the car and I'm just screaming in the car. I'm just screaming. And the one word I'm screaming is help. Help. Because there's there's no context for it. Like nothing prepares you for a moment when everything looks like it's about to end. You know? And you know those moments, uh, I think, uh, a few times in your life. But they don't really tell you how to comfort yourself, how to regulate your emotions, how to steady your mind. No meditation course does. And I, I, I push the accelerator to get there just as fast as I can. And I, I couldn't. I couldn't still my mind. All I could imagine was I was going to get to the hospital and find my son dead there. I think that word help, that was just like the most simple prayer I knew in that moment, right? This uncontrollable, wide open need that was ripping out of me. I think I became the prayer in that moment, just standing there naked just wanting my son to be alive. I got to the hospital and the the seizure had gracefully passed. It was actually the first of many for my son. Um, They stopped nine years later after uh, two dozen of them. It was like we dodged a bullet, you know, but um, I think the thing that sometimes hammers for me is we dodged that one. A bullet will come one day for him, for me. Nobody makes it out alive. The outcome is really, really certain. I think how we learn to stand in those moments where we are naked, where we are stripped bare, where we are afraid, where we are in need, those are how we will not only live, but how we will die. Did you cling? Did you clutch? Did you grasp? Or did you open up your heart fully in that moment? Hmm, Deep breath of that. I feel like that's what those moments do is they just open you further. You know, they like make you more conscious, more aware. But as you said, you sort of like, who are you in those moments? Do you decide that in those moments, you're finally going to stand in the truth of who you are? You're finally going to be naked. Um, (laughs) Yeah. You know, and and it's so easy to put the mask back on the shirt back on. You know, we're not saying literally go, uh, get nude and uh, go to the quad in the gymnasium as <laughs> I think it's from old school. <laughs> yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. That, that Those are the moments where you, you stand there. And I think for me, the thing I just have to acknowledge is that in that series of events, all the things that I had learned, all of the practices, the, the thousands of dollars spent and the thousands of hours spent, they all kind of came into place and the game just, it looked stupidly clear. And I knew that there was no hidden truth. There was no greater meaning that this life as it was, was the most beautiful and terrible and wondrous experience I would ever know life as it was. Yeah, not that one day and someday it will be better, but what I am at, where I am at, who I am at today, that this 
right now is enough. This experience right now, um, that's that falling in love with life as it is, I think, that I'm talking about. That's what came through for me. I started to laugh in the storm. Yeah. Reminds me of the Buddha, you know, just starts laughing incessantly at the humor of it. Oh, gosh, the dark humor of it, though, you know, and and you can't deny that you can't. So I'm curious, what is since you're you've had that experience and as you said, sort of further deepening experiences, what is possible for people from that space? I'm going to do something I don't hear people do a lot. And I'm going to open up my phone and I'm going to look at a text thread between my wife and I. The, the woman who I just described these experiences with um, now years later. And I just want to read to you the exchange between us today, because I think this gives an idea of what you're talking about. She says, you're my person. Damn, I can't believe this journey we're on. I respond, I say, I feel so complete with you. Like I never imagined was possible that this relationship we stand in is everything my heart dreamed of, not even knowing I dreamed of it. To which she responds, this thing called love, we truly entered it. The more we stepped into vulnerability and compassion and acceptance and forgiveness, the deeper and broader and more open it became. It is something I too only imagined. I only hoped was possible, but thought was just a fable, a fairy tale. I can't give words for the gratitude I feel of total givenness, total freedom, total acceptance. I really don't think people believe in love or relationships like this. How could they? I I think that's what's possible. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Amen. That's the juiciness of the depth of the acceptance and the surrender to all of it. When you see yourself as you are, you always have a choice. As you said, you can can throw back on the masks. You can patch back up the ice. Or you can go deeper, surrender more, be more and more revealed. And do so in relationships to those who would hold that space with you. And when you find them, and when they find you, um, it's like you you have no uh, no palette to be around anyone else, like who you can't be an authentic self with, right? It's like there's a distastefulness when you're around those who you have to cover up and mask up again. And um, and I think being in the presence of those people who are living their authentic selves loudly um is just such a joyous thing i mean that, that's the birth of community and again when we like zoom out and look at the world today i see that happening god it's like people finding one another <laughs> through all the noise and the smoke well to the listener listening to this i mean that's that's i love the people who participate in this podcast the guests the people who listen the people who share because we're just all on the same journey of wanting to figure it out. And just like, how do we become more awake, more unconditionally loving, more gracious, more compassionate? And how do we hold each other up? Because, you know, you're, we're never meant to be exiled from community in our transformations. You know, we're meant to be held because sometimes, you know, that saying, it takes a village. Oh man. Sometimes Mm -hmm. that is everything in those moments where you think you should be, that you're least lovable and and your community catches to you and says, oh, you're so damn lovable. That doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> that, that right there, like if you think about like friendships, I've got this wonderful friend, Ryan, who I've known for the past 15 years, just a wonderful individual. And he owns a, a local bar in the, in the area that I live in. And one day I, I went into the bar before anybody was in there and, uh, every time I, I like see Ryan, I have this weird need to like go to the bathroom that just occurs. Like I'll be at, I'll show up at his house and I just have to run to the bathroom first. And I don't, I don't quite understand the, the, the thing that happens, but it does. So and I'm showing up at his bar, which is clean before the opening. And I run to the bathroom and, uh, you know, I come out and I'm very apologetic and I look at him. I was like, Oh, I'm so sorry. So sorry. He's like, 
nah, man, I knew you were going to run to the bathroom. It's cool. I know you. <laughs> it's like as stupid as that sounds. What a delight to be known. You know, what a delight to be known and loved. No matter what, even if you hurt someone's <laughs> bathroom in an opening. Exactly. <laughs> My man, I appreciate you so much. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for this conversation. Um, I just feel so enriched and I can just feel my soul's like, yes, yes, more of that, more of that. Um, where can people find more of you? Well, I want to say thank you so much, Mark. And, um, you're just a real pleasure to, to converse with, and you've made it so easy to share my own sense of self and, um, the stories that have been accumulated for those people who are listening. If they want to just keep track, uh, go to Rainier wild on Instagram. That's where I hold court on a daily basis and put forward, um, whatever is sort of happening and coming out of my own world and thoughts and experiences. I blog sometimes too, but you can find almost everything at Rainier Wild. Go over to Amazon uh, if you care to, and and you can find As You Are, the book I've just came come out with, and um, and then also yeah, look out for future books. Mark just promised a, another book that I'm writing, and who knows? It seems like he might be a prophet. <laughs> yeah, 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 um, brother. I appreciate you. Thank you, man. We'll make sure we link all that stuff in the show notes. Awesome, brother. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If this episode resonated with you, one of the best ways to support the show is to go subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any more. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it, or share the episode with your community on Instagram or whatever social place you like to hang out. This helps get it into more people's ears, and I'm so grateful for your support, always. Thanks again for tuning in. Much love.